Hello and welcome to the Middle East Weekly Podcast brought to you by the Journal on Middle Eastern Politics and Policy. I'm Nicholas Norberg, a student at Harvard's Center for Middle Eastern Studies. And I'm Miriam Ghanem. I'm a student at the Center for Middle East Studies. I'm Amber Glavin, also a student at the Center for Middle East Studies. And I'm James Aird, a student at Harvard Graduate School of Education. And I'm Hamad Al-Hadri, also a student at the Center for Middle Eastern Studies. I'm Fritja Falk, a student at the Center for Middle Eastern Studies. We're just going to jump right into a conversation about a couple of the stories that we think need a little bit more coverage, a little bit more attention. So we're going to start out by talking about the October 2nd disappearance of Saudi journalist Jamal Khashoggi in Istanbul. Jamal Khashoggi was a Saudi journalist uh, who voluntarily went into exile from Saudi Arabia a few years ago after being uh, after having won too many of his pieces uh, banned and used to be quite close to the Saudi government, used to be quite supportive of the government and described himself as kind of a moderate critic, uh, someone who was very supportive of the government and really believed in the Saudi system, but wanted to be able to speak his mind about the government's policies, wanted to be able to, you know, criticize what he thought needed criticizing in a constructive way, as, you know, basically to offer advice to the royal family on how to better govern the country. Jamal was uh, living in Washington, D.C., and most recently in Turkey, in Istanbul, writing for, among other papers, the Washington Post uh, as a semi-regular columnist in their international affairs section. On October 2nd, Jamal Khashoggi entered the Saudi consulate in Istanbul to obtain papers for a marriage license and uh, did not reemerge. A couple hours later, his wife called the Turkish police saying that her husband had disappeared and that she had not heard from him. Over the next couple of days, much more reporting come out in the Turkish press that has also been picked up in the international press, claiming that the Saudi Arabian government sent a team to Istanbul to uh, kill Jamal Khashoggi. Allegedly, according to Turkish authorities, Jamal was killed at the Saudi consular's residence in Istanbul. He certainly has not been seen since, and the Turkish government has released footage of Jamal walking into the Saudi consulate in Istanbul and claims to have an audio recording of his actual killing, which also features the Saudi consular uh, saying that uh, he would get in trouble if this were done in his office and with the personnel uh, who were allegedly sent to kill Jamal telling him to leave the room if he did not want to be involved. So there's been a lot of vitriol over this. Uh, President Trump initially said, initially kind of derided the accusations and, uh, you know, suggested that they might not be true. However, most reporting has uh, kind of operated under the assumption that Mohammed bin Salman had direct knowledge of uh, Jamal's alleged killing and that he possibly ordered it in response to an article that Jamal Khashoggi had written in the Washington Post a couple of weeks earlier, criticizing the Saudi government's policies and specifically criticizing Mohammed bin Salman's governance of the country. So we're just going to dive a little bit more into the context around this story. How do you think that this will impact, if it will have any effect, on the relationship between the U.S. and Turkey, considering how volatile that relationship has been in recent years? Do you think this will change or improve this relationship, or do you think it'll make things worse? I think it is potentially an opportunity for the U.S. government and the Turkish government to cooperate on the investigation. The Turkish government did actually release from custody the pastor, Andrew Brunson, who's been held first in Turkish prison and then in uh, under house arrest for the last two years. That's been a huge sticking point in the Turkish-American relationship. President Trump over the summer passed tariffs on Turkey that were extremely damaging 
to the Turkish economy, saying that it was directly in response to Turkey's refusal to release this pastor. He's been released, you know, kind of in the midst of, of, this, uh, of this issue. So, uh, you know, I don't know if it's directly related, but it definitely offers an opportunity for the two of them to work more closely together. I think it's also interesting that Turkey is clearly holding back a bit of this. They could have released this audio, but they clearly have an interest in not breaking completely with Saudi Arabia. And it seems like Turkey, yes, they are dependent on having a good relation with Saudi Arabia for economic reasons. And I'm also wondering what their calculus vis-a-vis the U.S. in, in this is. Yeah, I mean, the, the Turkish-Saudi relationship is pretty interesting to me, at least. It's, it's oftentimes kind of fractious, but it doesn't usually break out into open hostility. Last year, during the meeting of the uh, Organization for Islamic Cooperation, Erdogan, you know, kind of uh, tossed a couple of barbs in Mohammed bin Salman's direction. I would also say, in terms of the U.S. relationship, that this would be an opportunity for Turkey, especially if... The U.S. is forced to distance itself a bit more from Saudi Arabia since, you know, historically and more so since Trump has been in power, Saudi is pretty much, you know, our number one ally in the region. Um, And, you know, Obama did start trying to move away from that a little bit and bring some other people into the picture, um, especially with the Iran deal. And now that that's kind of falling apart um, and we've stepped away from that, um, maybe there's a potential for us to look elsewhere for those other stronger relationships in the region. So this could be a time for the U.S. and Turkey to move a little bit closer. I think the Turkish government has certainly done what it could to make this a very prominent story. I will also say to that point, uh, it's also been a really good opportunity for the Turkish police to demonstrate to both the Turkish public and to the international community its investigative capabilities. Uh, The the Turkish police and gendarme has taken on huge political significance uh, in Turkey in the last last decade or so, but especially since the coup attempt in uh, July 2016. And uh, the police service has, you know, really gained a lot of political prominence for its utility in, you know, kind of bringing alleged coup plotters to justice and, you know, kind of rounding up members of the military and critics of Erdogan in the wake of the July coup attempt. And to take this back to just this, um, the bringing up the um, challenges that this poses for U.S. and Saudi relationships, do you guys think that since the Treasury Secretary, um, Stephen Mnuchin, like he pulled out of the, um, what was it, an investment, uh, the conference? Yes, (laughs) exactly. Um, So he pulled out of that. And so do we think that this is a signal from the U.S. that they're going to start reconsidering this relationship? Or do we think that this is more a just a just a, a move like just a way to for the US to show that they're trying to align with the right side or um like like do we think that this is actually going to result in significant change to that Saudi US relationship or is it just for show I would say as a counter to that mm-hmm. we could also look at what Trump has been saying most recently and what the White House is kind of putting out that um Some news outlets are calling a whisper campaign, um, kind of calling into question the integrity of this journalist who is being um, allegedly portrayed by the liberal uh, media as this upstanding citizen who, in fact, was a radical with ties to the Muslim Brotherhood. Um, One statement claimed that he cried on the day our boys killed Osama bin Laden, which seems like 
an impossible claim to substantiate, but um, that's... Sorry, not to, not to cut in, not seems like an impossible claim to substantiate, <laughs> is an impossible claim to substantiate. Um, yeah, this is, you know, the statements that the White, uh, that, uh, you know, the White House hasn't been putting out directly, but uh, that, you know, some of the information that's been, you know, floated out in the counter-narrative uh, to Khashoggi's disappearance uh, has, yeah, really not been based in fact. Um, and, you know, we just want to reiterate, you know, that he was, you know, kind of this moderate critic uh, of the Saudi, you know, administration. Um, but I do think that this has the potential to be a very successful tactic, particularly among the more devoted um, Trump supporters, particularly because I think what's been really different about this story is that it seems very cut and dry. There's really no good way to paint or back away from the idea that one government is murdering a single person. It's a very kind of concentrated issue that you can't really look at in any other way, unlike things like the war in Yemen or interfering in Lebanese politics, things like that that aren't as easy to grasp. So there really does need to be a way to kind of cast doubt on this whole picture that seems very moralistic and black and white. And I think calling into question Khashoggi's character is probably the only way that that's really going to happen. Um, of course, also casting doubt on whether or not Mohammed bin Salman actually knew about this. Um, but I do think that kind of signals that at least Trump is invested in maintaining this relationship and not necessarily allowing this to be the reckoning that maybe some people want it to be. It, it should also be said as well that uh, both President Trump and uh, the U.S. Congress uh, is certainly very concerned about the trade deal that uh, the U.S. signed with Saudi Arabia last year, uh, which ordered two years ago, last year, two years ago. Started, the process kind of started um, under Obama, I believe. Um, and then he, when he traveled there on his first diplomatic trip to Riyadh, um, I think they've didn't finalize, but signed additional letters of intent on more, like 101 billion more dollars worth of mm -hmm. arms deals. 110. 110. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, the 110 uh, billion dollar figure uh, for this arms deal represents a lot of American jobs, uh, which is a critical issue around the midterms, especially uh, in the U.S. And uh, the further several billion dollars in non-military goods uh, that were that were apparently agreed to are also certainly not finalized, but that represents a pretty huge economic loss that President Trump has been very careful to emphasize when he's talking about this issue uh, and trying to emphasize that, you know, for him, this is not just about one journalist. This is about this huge economic deal. Um, that doesn't seem to be the way that most of the international community has approached this issue and, you know, that there's, you know, that most countries, particularly, you know, U.S. allies, particularly uh, allies of Turkey, um, have, uh, you know, kind of called attention to the fact that this is, you know, one country going after one specific dissident. Uh, and uh, there's kind of, you know, there's there's a lot of worry that, the, you know, that not responding to this properly might encourage similar retaliations uh, against dissidents by other countries. Yeah, I just want to add something about the relationship between the U.S. and, and Turkey. We, uh, we must not forget that uh, currently in Manbij, Syria, the U.S. is sending heavy arms. Um, and it's one of the bigger issues that is not talked about as much in the media. But uh, the relationship between the U.S. and Turkey is, is very complex. And 
Uh, we have to look, be looking at some of the armed groups uh, such as the PKK, uh, the YPG, and, and the Syrian Democratic Forces, uh, um, because the U.S. is sending actively sending arms, uh, and Turkey continues to threaten to uh, send troops to the to the city. Yeah, and it's you know it's a really good point to bring up, especially because you know the U.S. also has ground, does, uh, also has ground forces in Menbij, and that's been a huge sticking point uh, between the U.S. and Turkey on. Syria and has been a major point of disagreement for the U.S. government with uh, Turkey on Syria policy. Uh, and it's something that the U.S. has kind of demonstrated that it's really not willing to give up um, since the U.S., you know, since Washington has sunk so many resources into the, you know, groups uh, that it's, you know, allied with in northern Syria there. Um, it's It's been really reluctant to see the Turkish point of view on uh on this part of northern syria and uh so yeah i mean it brings us back as well to the the potential cooperation for uh the u.s and uh turkey on this issue if it you know if they decide to continue going in that direction uh and gives them kind of a forum uh to address some issues that they you know might not otherwise be willing to address who would just sum up um who are the winners and losers of this whole situation uh to just clarify things a bit I think for for Turkey it's 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 hard because they're playing kind of a high game right now, uh, and it's very important for them how they they proceed with this. I think for Iran this they they're just gonna sit back and look at this uh, and let um, Saudi uh, inflict itself with the wound and which keeps festering. Uh, I think. It's very striking how Iranian media has said very little about this. Um, even Ayatollah Khamenei's own uh, media outlets are ba- barely mentioning this. Um, and the little that has been written about this is that this is worsening relations between uh, Turkey and, and Saudi Arabia. And of course, Turkey and Iran also have a lot of economic ties. And Iran has, uh, yeah big interest in, in seeing um, those strengthen and also, of course, diminishing uh, the U.S. attempt at um, uh, bringing together a front against Iran with uh, Israel and Saudi Arabia and the UAE and Egypt. The general attorney of Saudi Arabia just said that the initial uh, results of the investigation show confirmed the death of uh, Jamal Khashoggi and that when he visited the consulate to get his divorce papers, a fight broke out that led to his death. And the deputy chief uh, of intelligence was let go from his position, as well as the royal court advisor, uh, Saud al-Qahdani. So it's important to note that this report, this admission come, uh, has deviates from the reporting that we have so far on what actually happened. Do you think there's any reason for that? But yeah, let's just like be clear that the narrative that, that is out there has been controlled by Turkey so far. That this, but this is the Saudi narrative trying to counter, to counter that. Turkey is still releasing bits of information. The American reaction to this uh, story has also been complicated by President Trump's evolving response. President Trump was, you know, when, when in his initially lukewarm response to uh, this disappearance case, uh, President Trump was, uh, you know, really, you know, lambasted and was called out by journalists, by media advocates and by, you know, uh, members of Congress. Even conservative members of Congress, yeah. including Marco Rubio. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, saying that he really wasn't doing enough 
to respond to this issue and that his complacency was really damaging. Based on those reactions and based on that pushback that President Trump has gotten yesterday, October 18th, Trump gave a speech where he uh, basically, Trump gave a comment where he said that if reports of Jamal Khashoggi's death were true, then Saudi Arabia would have to pay a price. Uh, this was followed by some reporting that Saudi Arabia's King Salman was becoming personally involved in this case and uh, was exercising some restraint on his son Mohammed bin Salman, which is quite unusual because Mohammed bin Salman, even though he's the crown prince, even though he's not the king yet, has kind of been regarded as the de facto leader of Saudi Arabia for the last couple of years, particularly since his elevation over Mohammed bin Nayef as crown prince. What do we think this means for this case going forward? So what do we think this means for Saudi Arabia's relationship with the U.S. going forward? I think we still don't know if Mohammed bin Salman is, is if they're going to declare that Mohammed bin Salman had anything to do with it. So the fact that they let go of the deputy chief of intelligence from his post and Saud al-Ghahtani, who is the closest aide to Mohammed bin Salman, who has been basically in charge of the media narrative of, of the, the country. And I think it's partially because um, the reason that they confirmed his death is that because of the pressure that has been mounting on uh, the kingdom that they have to say and, and do something, uh, especially since a lot of investors pulled out from this business uh, conference. Now, there are two scenarios, I think. Either Mohammed bin Salman is going to be let go from his position or the king might promote senior royal princes to break his monopoly uh, of, of power. But yeah, it would be interesting to see how this will, will unfold. If either one of those things happen as well, it's important to note that that, is, that would be a huge shift in Saudi politics because, uh, you know, Mohammed bin Salman, particularly over the last two years, has really been regarded as having consolidated his hold over domestic politics in Saudi Arabia and as, you know, having become pretty much the only figure that matters politically in Saudi Arabia, or at least the final word in, you know, most political matters. If King Salman moves ahead with a decision to, you know, kind of reduce you know, his uh, significance in the domestic political scene, that's a huge deal. So James, Iraq has had a bumpy couple of months politically. There was an election, there was a delay. Now we finally have, you know, people in the top political posts in Iraq. Uh, can you just briefly run us through what the political shifts in Iraq uh, have looked like over the last couple of months? Yeah, of course. So the, the big shift, uh, our initial shift happened in May 2018, uh, when populist cleric Muqtar al-Sadar uh, claimed a victory in parliament, his uh, his Cyrun coalition. Uh, since then, he's put a lot of pressure on the Iraqi government to enact reform um, and place technocrats at high uh, leadership positions. Um, early Earlier this month, there uh, was a parliamentarian election to select the president of Iraq. Um, it went to Barham Saleh, uh, former prime minister of the Kurdistan region, uh, really well respected in, in the international community and uh, one of the founders of the American University of Iraq, up in Soleimania. Um, the same night, he uh, appointed or named uh, Adil Abdul Mahdi as the prime minister incumbent of Iraq. And uh, like Barham Saleh, he's another well-known technocrat. Um, both of them really well-respected in Iraq as well. Uh, but it's popular to note the, uh, the big shift in power um, of Muqtada al-Sarrar uh, as a populist uh, Shia cleric. Unlike the the other elites, and, and uh, unlike the other political leaders in Iraq, Muqtada al-Sarrar is famous for remaining in Iraq before the uh, 2003 U.S.-led in, uh, led invasion. He's he's been in Iraq for for a majority of the time, um, supporting uh, protests uh, and 
supporting the people. One of the biggest issues now uh, in terms of reform is uh, the lack of electricity and public services. In the past couple of months, there, there have been protests in Basra province uh, about the lack of, of public services, uh, mainly electricity because of the scorching heat, uh, the Iraqi summer, but also there is a crisis in water. Uh, due to the water crisis, uh, thousands of Iraqis have been hospitalized. Um, now Iraq is, is trying to uh, step away from uh, identity politics and their quota-based system um, in order to tackle the, the situation and enact reform. If the Iraqi government is doing such a bad job, if the, if the Iraqi federal government is doing such a bad job of providing public utility services in Asra province, then you know where are people getting their electricity from? How does that tie into U.S. policy? Oh, yeah, that's a great question. Basra, due to its geographical location uh, right next to Iran, um, has a lot of pressure coming in from Iran, uh, not just to PMF military forces, but uh, in terms of uh, the supply of basic services. Uh, the, the summer protests are actually uh, an, annual, an annual thing right now uh, since the 2003 invasion. Uh, each summer, um, without electricity, the only alternative is using a generator, uh, which is very costly um, at this time. So Iran's trying to, it looks like Iran's trying to come in and uh, apply some uh, uh, pressure and, and power part of the grid in Iraq. Um, most recently, uh, the U.S. is becoming involved in, in the whole ordeal. So there was this case earlier this week where President Trump exerted, has apparently exerted some pressure on the Iraqi government uh, to abandon its uh, contract with Siemens uh, and, and to accept GE's bid for a contract to provide utility services uh, in Iraq. Uh, could you tell us a little bit more background on that case and why that's a big deal for uh, domestic Iraqi politics? Of course. Well, across uh, Iraq and mostly Basra, the, there's a, a big demand for U.S. and Iran to get out of uh, Iraqi affairs. And that's coming from almost every political party and alliance, uh, along with the, the Ayatollahs, uh, the populist cleric Muqtad al-Sadar, but also the Grand Ayatollah um, al-Sistani. Now, to see this big deal uh, happen is quite, quite surprising. Uh, GE uh, did sign a... Uh, a memorandum of understanding with the Iraqi government. And it is a huge surprise because uh, according to the news until this Monday, it looked like Siemens had the deal in the bag. Um, so I'm looking out for more information. I think we should all keep our eyes on the news and to get more about this. Thanks for the update, James. This past week, we've also had uh, this uh, interesting case of the Iranian parliament's vote uh, on a terror financing bill. Frichov, can you give us a little bit of background on this case and uh, tell us what this vote has been all about and uh, how it ties into uh, broader Iranian foreign policy? On uh, October 7th, the Iranian parliament approved new measures against funding terrorism, which uh, changes some officials' hope that uh, the country will uh, move closer to uh, glo- global norms and uh, that the country will, will be removed from uh, investors' blacklists. Um, and this is in the con- context of uh, Iran facing a renewed, very harsh US, U.S. sanctions regime starting on November 4th. Um, so the background to this is that um, Iran has been trying to implement these standards, which is set by the uh, Financial Action Task Force, which is uh, headquartered in Paris, which is a global group of government uh, anti-money laundering and counter-financing of terrorism regimes. Um, And it had a deadline in June to have already implemented all the uh, 10 um, demands from the FATF. Uh, but it failed to implement it in time, but the FATF gave it a new deadline for uh, the end of October to have implemented all measures. Uh, 
Um, so even though the Iranian parliament approved the last one of the, these measures, which, which was about uh, uh, funding terrorism, uh, it is not a given that this will in fact come to pass because there are a lot of hardline, hardliners in Iran who are opposed to such measures because they fear that uh, it may have an impact on reducing Iranian support to their allies throughout the Middle East, such as Hezbollah. What happens now is that the measures have to be approved by Iran's Guardian Council, uh, which often comes to very different conclusions than the parliament. There is some reason to think that this will come to pass because the uh, Ayatollah Khamenei has in the past been uh, very supportive of implementing the uh, FATF uh, demands. So can you just give us a little bit more background on kind of what this, what the passage of this measure does? Why would Iran want to pass this bill, particularly if it's encountering so much resistance? As uh, Javad Sarif said himself, parliament faces a historic decision to act along the interest of the nation and take away any future excuses from the United States uh, understood then to pressure Iran. So even though Iran will very much be pressured from these renewed U.S. sanctions, this would be an attempt to take away some of the sting of it and to try to still attract foreign investors. Iran can claim that it has more benign intentions than if it fails to pass this anti-terrorism funding bill. Thanks for that update for Jeff. Uh, just to wrap up here, uh, we also uh, would like to draw a little bit of attention to the Bahraini elections. Mariam, can you tell us a little bit about uh, this lead up to the Bahraini elections? Yes. So this is something that our listeners should probably track. Bahrain's upcoming elections are supposed to be this new start towards moving towards a more democratic and open regime and like and trying to be more transparent. And ever since, you know, the, the instability that the protests in 2011 brought onto the country, this was kind of a sort of a beacon of hope. However, because of the tensions between the opposition groups and the royal family, there has been a call by the largest opposition group, El Wafa, to they they called for a national boycott of the elections because they believe that there's a preference being given to Sunni majority voting districts, which would completely, you know, disregard the, the needs and the desires of the Shia majority population. This started out as like this, you know, beacon of hope, but now it's kind of turning into if there's a low voter turnout, then this will not look good for the country. It will um, be a major setback for Bahrain. Why is the voter turnout expected to be so low in these elections? Because there has been recently the um, Bahraini authorities have been dissolving opposition groups. They've been silencing a lot of the Shia uh, populations and they haven't been meeting the needs of the people. There has been a lot of tension between the Shia, um, the Shia populations and the royal family because of the silencing of opposition groups, dissolving um, political parties that that are that have like predominantly Shia membership, as well as um, they arrested 169 citizens and 111 of which they've alleged um, have ties with Hezbollah. So there has been a crackdown on the population, which has left voters or citizens feeling neglected. So, so this this is pointing towards a, a pretty dismal voter turnout at this point. I think it's really important to look at what's been happening in Bahrain the past couple of months. So uh, Bahrain's currency, the dinar has plummeted due to the low prices of of, um, uh, of oil. Uh, the government also has recently introduced uh, VAT, the value-added uh, taxes, after receiving a $10 billion aid from UAE, Saudi Arabia, and Kuwait, which 
the opposition group think that they will not be benefiting from. But most importantly, members of uh, opposition groups will not be able to run again for elections uh, because uh, of a bill introduced uh, by the parliament, uh, barring them. Thanks very much for that uh, update on Bahrain. We'll be sure to be uh, watching those elections uh, quite closely. And uh, thanks very much for tuning in to the JMET podcast. And uh, we'll talk to you guys soon.